If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Start playing just Hobgoblin by myself for my own pleasure. And I was like, do you know what? This is still really fun. And this is still a game that doesn't exist that I really like. Like I, the things that I want to be true still aren't true about um, the games that I've got access to. So I wonder if there's something. Now, Mike has been on the show before. And if there's one miniature game, I recommend all game designers to check out. It's his A Billion Sons. The design ripples of that game will be felt in the tabletop design world for a long time. Gregory is one of the minds behind the Blaster magazine. Quite frankly, you are behind the curve if you play miniature games or design tabletop games and don't read every issue. Now, together, they've pulled rank and file square based massive fantasy battles from the cinders left by Warhammer Fantasy and created a game only they have the chops to make. So what's the pitch? Use any of your own models. Roll heaps of dice and massive battles and finish the game in under two hours. Under two hours. Minigame listeners, I heard your jaws drop. I'm excited for you to hear about the elegant doom mechanic at the heart of this game. Mike is the top mini game designer of our time. You will hear about one of my favorite subjects, collaboration and how that happens. Stay until the end when Mike shares what he believes to be the life cycle of miniature gaming and where the hobby loses most people. And one last thing, if you enjoy this episode, can you let people know? Share it with a friend who would dig the gold and insights shared by Mike and Gregory. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Mike and Gregory. Hi, I'm Caitlin Bruder. And I'm Kristen O'Neill. And you're watching Disney Channel. (laughs) (laughs) And when we're not making Thin Places Radio, we are listening to Tabletop Talk. See you there. Bye. Okay, well, perfect. (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Got it, one. (laughs) Howdy, friends. Craig here. Joining me today are Mike Hutchison and Gregory Horton. Gregory is the editor of Blaster and the founder of Electi Studios, which is dedicated to building a better creative process that makes legendary games. Gregory, welcome to the third floor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited, Craig. I appreciate you coming on. So uh, we'll get to Mike in a second. Mike has already uh, been through the gauntlet as far as an origin story, but I'm going to have to subject you to it, which is I'm sure this is a story that you get asked on every stupid podcast that you get invited to. But I like to kind of phrase it a little bit different. At one point, you really knew nothing about miniature gaming, role-playing gaming, and the entire hobby of tabletop gaming, and then it was put in front of you for the very first time. Can you take me back there? Yes, it is a very sensitive subject, but I'll go back with you. I'm just kidding. Um, I was, (laughs) my mom's actually here visiting me, and she's part of the story. So this is like, I don't know. I don't know when the board game Dragon Strike came out. I should probably memorize this, but um, there's a board game called Dragon Strike uh, where I think you get sucked into like a VHS tape and turned into wizards and dragon slayer type, you know, just standard tropes for 
RPGs. And I was watching the intro video to that where, you know, you basically get transported to the tabletop world to, to tra- traverse this dungeon. And my parents put two and two together that the Christmas gift they gave me was uh, Satanic Dungeons and Dragons. And we had to pack it back up and take it back to the store. No um, kidding. Yeah. And so I'm literally, yeah, I'm a young guy, but I shouldn't have been like crying in public over a toy kind of young. And yeah. I just remember like barely being able to hold it back because of I had just spent all this time reading the rules and like, you know, and who knows if they had just, <laughs> if they had just let me have it, I might have been bored of it and it would have been fine for everybody. But now I've like quit my job to like, focus on building games because i'm obsessed with like just i've been chasing that high ever since of like i want to play it so it was you you had possession of dungeon and dragons and then at some point your parents recognized the satanic panic information and they took it all away is that what we're saying essentially yeah essentially and like they they had been supportive on other things like but it was it was just you know it was the 80s or 90s. Yeah. You know, it was like I was there. I, yeah. Like, I feel like our our church was pretty, pretty liberal, even for that. It wasn't like a Southern, you know, Southern Baptist <laughs> or something where it's like Pokemon was the devil. But they were getting right. fed like a ton of information. They're like, what? what's what? You know, like turn Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, also an obsession of mine. And uh, those are bad. And all, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was everywhere. So I guess the next obvious question is, is at some point you were able to return to tabletop gaming. So it was, it was put in front of you, you smelled it and then it was taken away. When did you finally get your hands back into the hobby? So in 2009 or so, I was working at, as a print broker, I became obsessed with making books and interesting we had some books at the agency i was working at they had books that were they were producing delta green i think they were producing silicate yeah i think they were produced not not the creative side but just the publishing right um and i was like these are cool oh yeah i remember these from my my days long long gone um and i sent myself to Gen Con to try to get some clients. And I had such a fun time at Gen Con. This was, I have the dice. It's Gen Con 2008. And I no met, kidding. I met um, the art director for Privateer Press, Chris Aubin. Mm-hmm. And we hung out and became good buddies. We still talk today. And um, yeah, he gave me a Sigmar army, basically. <laughs> To like get me into the hobby. And so I started yeah. playing War Machine before I played any Warhammer or any of that. I was like a weird. So I've played War Machine, Infinity, and that's basically, and Bolt Action, that's basically my hobby journey. I have like zero time in the whole, uh, the big company uh, hobby. So how, so how old are you at this point? I mean, you're, 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 you're obviously working for, for a company, you're making books. So, um, this, so I have a chronic issue of swinging outside of my weight class. So, um, I was, I think 19. Oh, geez. Okay. I'm like in, in international broker at 19, you know, just like the usual. (laughs) 
And, and so you, you meet the guys for privateer price. You're given, you're given a, a Sigmar army. You take this thing home and like, what was your first game? And were you like, Oh my God, why has this not been in my life this whole time? Or if this is interesting and it grew on you, what was the reaction? Yeah. So I, I painted up the, um, my half of the Signar army and, and I went down to the local store and I entered a tournament, uh, just to, because that's the only place to find players in America. I've been told. So I'm in a tournament and I'm terrible. I'm literally grasping the basic concepts of the game and I'm getting war machines infamous for you just get thrashed. I don't yeah. know. I like, and I'm not a quitter. So as soon as I got beat, I was like, I've got to figure out how to last longer than a turn. Like I think I was scar bombed and all of the things <laughs> uh, just like right out the gate, just lost right away. Oh, this is really hard. And just over time, the people that I was meeting like Chris and like people in the store that were Hey, do you want to try my side? Come on, this is the side of the table and play my army, the one I just nice. featured with. And like just that camaraderie and and all of that just got me really engaged. I like people. I like that time of, you know, just not video games that is with yeah. another person across the table. And I don't know, I get really engaged in the the fantasy of it all. Like I imagine what's going on. I make the pew pew noises of the laser beams and I <laughs> uh, just get really, into, really into it. Yeah. Now, some people stop there, right, Gregory? So they they find the hobby, they jump from game to game, they paint up a bunch of armies and have just a great time at the tabletop. But you're a little bit different because you decided you want to do a little bit more with it. You want to get into the design aspect of it and start with the creating piece of it. So can you give me an idea where the where the kernels of the studio came from? Yeah. So I was working at another agency at the time uh, this idea kind of came up. And we were doing creative services and branding for companies. And it's very much a process in learning that process of, of how to build upon ideas and improve them and identify places that are weak and where they're stronger and all of that was this process that I had sort of mastered over years of, I, and I say mastered very loosely, I should probably <laughs> say, you know, like I had gotten the process pretty much down with my my peers there. And we, I realized I'm working with the guys at Blaster and uh, they don't have a brand. At the time, we didn't have a name. We didn't have, um, we had like a concept of what the magazine would be. But I realized that none of us really knew what it was going to be and how it was going to continue to go. Like, what would it be? It's driving forces, which right. were all things that I had background in. And that was once I started to see people get Blaster and get it. That's when I started to think, oh, dude, maybe I can do this and start launching yeah. my own games. Um, so that's kind of... And again, I, I had been like the in college, I was doing like a poetry magazine. And not because I was super interested in poetry, but I just love Adobe. Like I was Isn't just in something? Photoshop and InDesign. And I was like, this is awesome. And you get to make a book out of it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So once I realized passion plus passion can kind of come together, that's when I get excited. What was your, what was your origin story from a, from a blaster perspective? So we got Mike and under, Mike explained how, you know, how he got involved with the Illuminati group that I call, that you guys call blaster. What was your entrant to it? So I was, talking i have a close friend 
that lives in Napa named Sean Sutter. And he's one of the Illuminati. Yeah. Sean's been and, on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And Sean was sharing, you know, hey, I'm, I'm uh, going to be doing a book with Ash Barker and the guy who did Gaslands. I didn't know uh, Mike at all at that point. And, and the guy who wrote Frostgrave and the guy who wrote This Is Not a Test. And I remember thinking, like, good for you, man. Thanks for, <laughs> like, you freaking jerk. <laughs> rubbing my nose in it <laughs> it's like that's great and then i texted him like an hour and a half later oh were you inviting me to be a part of this that's like really you're just funny. being very you know sean's charm is just that he's like painfully coy too so you're just like <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was my entree and so i show up to this meeting and all the like all of our cameras come on and i'm just like trying to withhold the amount of uh you know uh, starstruck or whatever that I'm feeling. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> so if, if you didn't have imposter syndrome at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, but it was weird. It was it's really cool. It was like a lot of people that you know I consider heroes in the hobby to be a little different than big picture heroes, but some like you know middle ground heroes asking me questions that I knew the answer to, and that that right. felt really good. And that's what kind of I think. Rein, you know, reinvigorated that trust that, oh, I can do this and that mm-hmm. these people need this help. That's awesome. And that's really that how that agency, like there needs to be a place where um, Mike can come to be like, here, I have this cool idea and I want to build it and make it better. Like that has to exist. Yep. Yeah, very, very cool. Listeners know Mike Hutchinson from episode 146. He is the founder of Planet Smasher Games, creator of Gaslands, and what I believe to be one of the most innovative miniature games in the last two decades, A Billion Suns. Mike, welcome to the third floor. Hello there. Happy to be here. So, Mike, um, first off, can't thank you enough for reaching out uh, to come back on the show. That's probably the biggest compliment uh, this podcast can get is when people people realize that it wasn't a mistake the first time. <laughs> and I'm not going to subject you to the origin story, but I am going to ask you about a blog post I read recently uh, from uh, written by you. I don't know if you've written it recently, but it, it's one of those things that, you know, sometimes when you come across something and you read it and it gets stuck in your brain and you keep going over and over the concept. Um and it was this idea of designing for extensibility. So can you explain what what you're saying in that blog article? What does designing for extensibility mean? Hello, Craig. It's nice to be back. Um, I've got, uh, The reason I reached out and uh, wanted to come back on is because I remember listening back to our conversation and going, my goodness, Craig asked some good questions that thrust <laughs> us in some interesting directions. So uh um, Thank you. Uh, slightly trepidatious to find out where we end up with. And so <laughs> you've, you've started with actually a topic which I'm really happy to talk about because I don't feel like an expert on this topic of designing for extensibility. And I, I, shall, I shall get to the reason why. And one of the reasons I write blog posts about designing games is to sort of r- introspect and retrospect on some of the crunchier parts of the process that I'm tend to be going through by myself. And so it's a chance to sort of examine some of the bits and bobs. But designing for extensibility, like there there are experts out there about how to design games that um, warrant, invite, nay, demand further supplementary material to be written to extend them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about the author of Frostgrave. Joe McCullough is absolute. I, I consider him to be one of the masters of this. Like he creates a game, and then he just seems to be able to create like a spawning pit for additional books. <laughs> um, and the problem I've got, Craig, is that I'm actually awful at this. Like I haven't really extended many of my games beyond yeah. a couple of bits and bobs here and there because. Um, my sort of the way that my design brain works is it demands novelty and that's just Mm -hmm. a sort of, um, that's a disease that I carry around in general. It's one of the things that makes me a kind of magpie, uh, gamer where I'll just sort of go from one shiny new exciting system or novel idea to another. But with, but, but with me, it's also the fact that the reason I like writing, little games and the reason that i'm so pleased to be an indie designer that's managed to find you know some ability to 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 get to get new games out to an audience is that i really like the completeness of an indie game being like the game is about this it needs to feel like this and so all of the mechanics and all of the gameplay including like the scenarios and the and the force building options like they all need to speak to a central idea a bit like you know like it it's it's it it's not built as a vehicle for a commercial success over time. It's built as an expression of an idea in a sort of, in a sort of as, as perfect a form as I can get it to be. And often by doing that, um, I get to a point where I can't really extend it without thinking like, yeah, kind of ruining it at this point. Like it was just how I wanted it. And now sure. someone wants like 10 more scenarios or 15 more like vehicle classes or something. And it's like, Oh, but the, are these things genuinely adding, to what I was trying to say with the game's design. And so in this blog post, I was examining, when I was designing A Billion Sons, uh, which you've been very complimentary about in the past. Oh, um, it's so good, Mike. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just happy you got it. I like it, but many people were like, Gaslands was great. Let's look at album two. This is a weird prog monstrosity. <laughs> so I got to stop here real quick, Mike. So uh, there's, I have not recommended a miniature game anywhere as close as much as I recommend a billion sons. Um, and I've been known and I've said this on other episodes. I think it's the most innovative miniature game in the last two decades um, for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, and that's not what this podcast is about, but here's the best compliment I can give you is I have easily talked 10 or 15 people into buying it. And everybody comes back and said, Craig, you didn't oversell it. Like, holy shit, this game is something else. So hats off on that. Wow, I appreciate that, man. I really do. Um, So as I was designing A Billion Suns, I was trying to figure out as I got towards the end of it. And actually, Greg Greg and I were having exactly this conversation earlier this week, where like I got to the point in Billion Suns where I didn't want to build a bunch of expansions into the core rulebook, but I wanted to make sure that I'd done the mental work of thinking, okay, put put myself forward a year or 18 months, like, do I have the hooks in this game system so that if I swap something out for an expansion version of it or a replacement mm-hmm. version of it, that the game still works? Like, it's got it's got kind of cartridges in, in the sort of NES kind of meaning. Right. It's got, like, cartridges that you can take out and plug in again. And so the way that the contract system is built is very deliberately sort of pluggable, where you pull right. out the core system contracts that you get in the book and you plug in the war zone ones or you plug in the fringe ones which is what i've been trying to get to for a while is an expansion i want to do a kind of smaller scales you know smugglers and and gun running kind of maybe even like fewer ships and smaller ships and some of them have got ace pilots Mm -hmm. and stuff i've got a lot of ideas but not not enough spare time so i don't know like the, the the things that the things that are natural to extend on are things like 
you know, things that we've been taught by big, like not evergreen systems, but like big commercially sort of lumbering juggernaut systems where it's like, okay, you've got to have more factions, you've got to have more campaigns, right. you've got to have more settings. And like RPGs provide a great sort of splat book model and sort of adventure model, you know, things like Frostgrave provide, you know, this model of like, okay, I'm just going to keep adding like packs of scenarios that I've always mm-hmm. got ways, new ways to play the game. Or in the case of like, you know, art, sort of big army games like War Machine or like Warhammer, it's like, okay, there's a new force or there's a revision to an army uh, that we need to examine. And so I'm always looking for like how to do that cleanly with my designs. But I also, yeah, I still don't feel at all confident about it. And I think it's because, I don't know, like I genuinely, my design brain works in this other direction where I'd rather write another game than an expansion to an existing game. And I get that quite a bit with Gaslands. People are like, I love Gaslands. Can we have some more Gaslands? I'm like, I tried writing some more and it kind of got bloated and it wasn't yeah. really needed. And the thing that, like, I don't know that ever, I don't know that evergreen is the right word to describe any of these games because they all need people to be continuously excited about it. But like, I wanted to find a way to make people excited by Gaslands over time without me having to ruin it. Yep. Yep. So I guess the question I'm, I'm trying to understand here, Mike, is, is this something you are striving for? So you, you've recognized this as a, a deliberate design decision, right? And it's con- con- contrary to a lot of your instincts, which is to create this perfect little tiny game. Are you are you wanting to be able to have more extensibility or you're like, I'm, I'll explore it a little bit. I'm trying to get a sense of what's what's pulling you right now or if nothing is pulling you. So I'm always working on new game ideas. And one game idea I'm working on at the moment has kind of taken this problem not totally centrally, but it's one of the like three pillars of design problems I'm trying to work on with this. So I'm trying to imagine right now, given the world that um, that we created for Hobgoblin, uh, which I'm sure we will talk more about, given that world and given um, a sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, I've got an interest in writing an extremely small scale, extremely tactical combat system that's got kind of like, I don't know, like a, almost like a dueling system because I was messing around with mm. some playing cards and I've got these ideas about sort of like taking some of the ideas that you get in like sort of uh, tense um, uh, board game combat like Kingdom Death or Eon Trespass right. and sort of working on something that would work but with miniatures and, uh, and in a much more DIY way. And then the third part of this was like, and how could I make this like a very pluggable sort of, you know, locations, missions, campaigns, like some kind of, you know, like, how could it be as pluggable as like the fighting fantasy game book series? <laughs> and, and I don't know whether I'll finish this game or get anywhere with right. it. But the point is like, y- yes, I'm interested in it. And I think that in some cases, the game, it will be very suitable for games. And in other cases, I think I'm just totally fine that designing for extensibility is not actually a criteria for success. It just might be one of the design goals you you pick for a given game. And I think it's something I'd never thought about, Mike, until I read the blog post and now talking to you more, which is it's not an afterthought, right? This is something that you need to think about at the very beginning and make some decisions about. Um, And I think when it's treated as an afterthought, it's pretty obvious because there are games that I stopped playing because of that bloat um, where it's just like, no, stop, stop putting out like, stop it, <laughs> you know, um, which is not something that happens with Gaslands or a billion suns, um, you know, and, and I've never thought about them as, as their own little perfect containers, uh, which is super interesting. So guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Mike and Gregory today. We're going to be right back from this break to talk about 
Hobgoblin. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. So guys, Hobgoblin, which uh, just recently while we were recording this, finished up our crowdfunding, but there's going to be links for you guys to check it out and ways for you to get your hands on it uh, post-campaign. But very quick, let me give you the blurb on Hobgoblin. Hobgoblin is a fast-paced and thrilling rank-and-flank tabletop miniature war game set in the fantastical underground world of... <laughs> of Rot... Rotvar... Vor- Rotvalden. Rotvalden. <laughs> You're going to roll it, man. Simple and adaptable rules. Players can collect and field any fantasy army they can imagine, engage in brutal battles that last under two hours. And I think there's a lot of things in there, Mike and Gregory, that that turn me on. One is use whatever miniatures you want, which which we're a little bit used to um, from from you guys. But the under two hours is a big deal. But before we get into the game itself, I want to go backwards the way I always do. So, Mike, at some point. The idea of a flank, uh, rank and flank miniature game was not on your radar, and then suddenly it was. And I want to get an idea of of the origins or the or the uh, the the acorn that became Hobgoblin. Absolutely. So I have uh, I have a lot of uh, little square based armies. So I played a lot of uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battles as a kid, and when I was uh, I was I guess I was just getting back into the hobby after the break uh, that we all have, and uh, we got into this really really nice routine of um, kicking back on a Saturday morning. It would always run slightly long into the afternoon, and it would be most of the day. And we'd play these massive, uh, we'd play these massive square based battles of huge like you know, 10, 12,000 point uh, armies right. crashing each other, into each other, three three players aside. And it was, you know, it was super fun. But um, w- one thing that I always found was that uh, the bigger the games got that we played, the more we f- we found ourselves fighting against the rule system. And the other guys didn't really mind. They just, you know, they liked playing what they liked playing. But I, I'm, you know, I was, I was looking at lots of other rule systems going, I wonder if there's a different way of playing this. And so I started looking at like, historical systems and more zoomed out systems. Like um, I, I remember looking at Warmaster and trying briefly to convince mm-hmm. them to, to play using that rules rather than the ones that we were playing. But, you know, I was, I was in this, I was in this mode where I was writing a game a month and uh, trying to challenge myself to finish a bunch of uh, miniature games really fast. And so I just, <laughs> I, 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 I'd been, 
I've been absolutely obsessed with Advance Wars on uh, the Nintendo Game Boy for like, I don't know, probably seven years at this point. And I'm not familiar with that game. What is that game? So it's like a, it's like a, it's like a little zoomed out map game and you've got these different unit types like tanks and light tanks and heavy tanks and infantry and bazooka infantry. And you just have to sort of navigate around the map in a, in a, in a sort of, it's almost like a counters and squares war game, but it's absolutely oh. glorious. And there's this lovely interplay between the different units and which terrain type they're in. And so I remember, because I, I actually went back and found the original manuscript. So about eight years ago, I wrote this thing called Advanced Wars Hammers, uh, which was <laughs> just saying, oh, I wonder what would happen if I took all of the things that I love about Advanced Wars and sort of started to try and overlay like a kind of medieval fantasy type situation around it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, long story short, that game uh, sort of really caught, captured my imagination. And, the, and as I was pushing it around on the table, it really got... I got into the I, I got really got into the trying to figure out how to make a game sweep in the way that I wanted it to sweep and not get hung up and caught and bogged down in the places that I was finding that, that weren't very interesting. They were just resolutions of combats, which you know I just wanted that resolution to go very swiftly and kind of get uh-huh. out of the way of getting to the next cool part of the game. Um, so that was about seven years ago that I sort of finished the first version of Hobgoblin. Huh. And um, then I shopped it around uh, and got a, a, a number of rejections from uh, from game companies that I thought were, were wonderful and might be interested. Um, but the rejection of Hobgoblin led uh, to a conversation with uh, um, Offspray uh, and them picking up Gaslands. So mm-hmm. the conversations were, were, were great, but then I was, you know, I was off to the races and I was thinking about Gaslands and I was playtesting, I was thinking about a billion suns, and I was playtesting it. And eventually during COVID, I came back to, uh, start playing just Hobgoblin by myself for my own pleasure. And I was like, do you know what? This is still really fun. And this is still a game that doesn't exist that I really like. Like I, the things that I want to be true still aren't true about, um, the games that I've got access to. So I wonder if there's something here. And um, and then, as you br- briefly alluded to, uh, Greg quit his job to start a games company, and I was like, "Oh, somebody, somebody could make this thing look really good." <laughs> <laughs> so you reach out to him. Yeah, well, I reached out to Greg because I was like, uh, <laughs> "Greg said he's remembered this slightly differently," but I was like, "Well, I'm sure that like right now is the exact moment to ask Greg if he's interested in a project because <laughs> it's about his weakest second after he quit." <laughs> <laughs> You're Greg, such a you wanna, predator, Mike. Want to make a game? I've got a game. And guys, I said yes without reading it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I read it. It was really good. I remember thinking about the uh, the sort of that inner. The in, he didn't pitch it to me as advanced words with that interplay of like this unit counters this unit. But mm-hmm. as I was reading the rules, to me, it it felt like I don't know there. Every time I played any RTS, there's this sort of like feeling you get when these big battles clash that it's like timing the right unit in the right place at the right, right time is is totally present. But then when you play that in a normal tabletop version of a game like uh, mass, mass, mass Battles, is the game just stops. Like there's yeah. that first initial thing and then the game stops and the lines are that way. Um, and so reading the rules, I could immediately see, oh, this is... This is this is making a design decision. Is the best mm. possible way to phrase it is that this is a design decision to cut down on interactions that 
this version of this game wants to cut down on around a very clear brand. I want this fast, brutal battle. Why are all the battles slow and lumbering? That doesn't even make sense when you say it out loud, when you think about and imagine a massive battle. It's absolute chaos. So thinking of, yeah, anyway, so that was for me, uh, I immediately locked in on like the vision and seeing, you know, I've worked with uh, Mike and the guys at Blaster. and I knew like he would be designing this from a perspective of here's my goals for the game. But what I didn't expect was being able to read them in the beta version of the rules in a word document. Right. Well, and, and so we're, and your your eyes are, are I think are are a good one for this, uh, Gregory, because you were fresh eyes, right? Mike had been you know slowly boiling this game for a long time, whereas you're a fresh perspective jumping into it. And we've danced around a little bit. So what's the difference, right? So how, what was this des- design decision? How did Mike? In that early version, before you got your hands on it, what was that decision? How does that chaos happen? How do we stop the thing from bogging down? What's in the game that does this for us? Whenever you make a, de- a decision on a unit, you you have to inject flavor into it. Otherwise, it's bland, right? So uh, the units were all clearly defined as like sort of their functions. Mm. And you got to pick what specific things you wanted to bring characteristic wise to that unit. So there's the fun. I get to use whatever minis I want side of it, but there's also the side of it that as a bolt action player and an infinity player, we both have the same tools in our toolkit. If I go look at the back of the book, I can go, Oh, that's a, you stop asking questions is is what I'm trying to get at is the efficiency (laughs) of your, experience actually builds each game you play we have a chart that's like calculates what you need to hit and i've memorized it for the most part now right you know and am not even referencing it uh, even in games i felt very comfortable with i would be pulling up references quite a bit so yeah. that's that's the first thing looking at things like that the amount of dice to one for one unit to attack another. So you typically look at your unit, go, okay, who are these guys? All right, great. They're, I, I'm going to have to look at their stat card or their listing, army list. I'm going to look at the amount of dice that they get to roll for strikes. I have to calculate kind of the situational issues of the moment. Um, are they in this kind of terrain or that kind of terrain? Did they charge or did they not charge? All of these different things add up to minutes and those minutes add up to hours Mm. by thinking, hey, everybody wants to roll heaps of dice. Let's just do that and give every, you know, melee basically the same amount of dice. So more or less, you always roll 10 dice. So you're getting used to the idea of picking up 10 dice, rolling them and then looking at the unit's abilities as something that modifies that dice roll. So that's where the right. flavor comes in. So mm-hmm. you're you're speeding through these massive combats. You still have that feeling of just like checking your dice out to see where your hits are and how many, how many doom your opponent's going to take. Um, and then that's the last bit is doom is this core mechanic in the game that, you know, I think the biggest thing for doom is that it takes 
the morale checks and the psychology checks and the, the to save checks and the yeah. wound checks, and it rolls it all up into one satisfying uh, stat. That stat gives you the agility to quickly move through a turn, do the bookkeeping, and get on to the next round. Oh, that's cool. So, Mike, um, I want to go backwards just a little bit. So th- this idea is kicking around because you got a bunch of square bases you want to get you get use of. You shop this around and uh, you end up um, putting it on, putting it on the shelf for Gaslands and for a billion suns. I want to go to the moment where you bring Hobgoblin back in front of you. Was there something that surprised you after you'd had it put away for a while and then you pulled it out again and read through it? Um, or was it exactly as you remembered leaving it? I think it looked different to me with ideas of, let's call it professional, because we do do sell these things. It looked different to me after five years of professional games design. Um, And one of the things that was apparent to me was it didn't exactly know what its core um, design principles were. And so I actually, so I have a, I have a, game design podcast, which uh, I will plug, called Rule of Carnage, uh, which you can check out on both podcast apparatus and on YouTube. And in at the Rule of Carnage, we, me and my good buddy, Glenn, who who we, we collaborated uh, from sort of second half of Gaslands and then all the way through Billion Sons, like he started challenging me on the podcast about what the what the objectives of this game, what were the principles that were going to guide the design of it. And so I think that was one of the fun things was finding out that actually I didn't know exactly what the game was. And once I got this phrase of like, it's brutally fast. Okay, brilliant. Mm. Now all of these other things, which I, I knew were good. Now I can contextualize some of the things that I liked, but didn't fit in the game. And I'd be like, is that speeding the game up or slowing it down? It's slowing it down. It's going bam. Interesting. Um, and the other thing was, I was able to look at it with fresh eyes and say, um, if we're going to make a brutally fast game, the brutal parts, like one of the ways of expressing that is to make sure that everything that happens in the game moves the game state forward. And like you, you're a, you're an RPG player. So you kind of, you kind of get the fail forward idea right? Uh, yep. quite naturally, but like in a fair number of board games and indeed, tabletop war games like that fail forward isn't actually a thing that's built in there's quite a lot of nothing moments or moments where you roll a bunch of dice and nothing happens or you get no hits or like you cast a spell and somebody uses the no thank you to that spell (laughs) ability and so every one of those places that i spotted in my own game i was like well let's just make something happen and then the game is happening faster and 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 you know it's not just that we crash into the middle and then we sort of sit there resolving mechanical combats until somebody in that line breaks it's like no let's make let's make sure that everything that happens every decision that i make it might not go my way but it goes some way interesting interesting so you pull this thing off you recognize those things i assume you start making changes Mm. you then um suck in greg and say or gregory and say hey um i i I want you to look at this and uh, we heard what gregory's reaction to it where does it go from there, um, Mike? So when did when do I start to see Gregory's fingerprints in Hobgoblin? When does that what does that first look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess like the game when I pulled it back out, it 
it's it's eight pages long, right? I mean, <laughs> the font is small, but it but that's all it is. And so, you know, Greg is quite reasonably asking, okay, cool. Like, I like the idea. The game looks the game looks good, but like, I have to make a book out of this, Mike. What? Do, how? Wh- where's the rest of it? What are we going to do yeah. about the rest of it? Uh, you know, in a kind and 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 uh, collaborative manner. And so, I think you know, we talked a, a fair bit about where the where the additional kind of um, where the additional meat would go onto this initial skeleton. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really exciting was Greg was like, well, look, I know that this thing has, is kind of, it's got generic unit types. That means that any faction can be built by the player. And so that's deliberately so that they can use their own models in any situation. Although it's even more specifically because I want, you, I want anything that I have painted in the past to just be a viable thing that I can use. I don't want the model it is to determine whether or not it's going to be usable in the game. And we can get right. into some of the ways that like building your army is a sort of iterative kind of mix and match sort of, you know, it's, it's more like tuning a magic deck than it is like building a normal army. Um, but one of the things that Greg said to me was like, well, you know what would be lovely would be to put this in a place and to see mm-hmm. like like from the games that I've done before uh, because of the format that Offspray uh, and I have been working in have been very light on setting and I didn't realize how desperate I was to just like really walk out and sort of stretch my legs on the on the setting thing with a billion suns for example you can see I I had to use a lot of ingenuity to find places to put setting. So like yeah. the captions of the photograph were like a precious resource. Cause I was like, am I allowed to catch and caption the photos? And they were like, yes, you can caption the photos. Like, right. That's where all the setting information is going. <laughs> so, so, so Gregory gets you like, gives you license, right. To create a world, to put this game in. It sounds like you were hungry to do that. How do you start? Well, not only that, he said, Mike, wh- why don't you, re- I don't, I don't want a travelogue of this world. <laughs> like, I don't want like the lonely planet guide to yield the fantasy land. Like, give me the smeary bloodshot eyed view from like the Halberdman's. Uh, I think that was literally the phrase you said, like, yeah, was. show me what the Halberdman is looking at. Very nice. Uh, which sort of evolved into uh, pushing me into writing fiction, which is not something I've ever done before. Um, but, uh, Greg has this wonderful friend called Stuart uh, Warren, and so he has written fiction and knows what the technology of writing fiction is. Because mm. my goodness, when you start to sit down and start to write fiction, if you don't know what you're doing, and I've got like 25 years of writing technical language, technical right. documents for work, technical you know rules writings, like I'm comfortable with that stuff, but it does not work for fiction. <laughs> it's not the same kind of words in any regard. So yeah, that was I think that was the biggest and most exciting uh, place that Greg kind of pushed initially and gregory as you're you're watching mike you know dive into this whole new style of writing um what was some of your initial reactions as you as you started getting these pieces and you started you know as he starts presenting them to him uh did you immediately go wow mike this is great or have you thought about this what was your reaction um so i don't react like that typically because just again the principle and foundation of all this is like creating a process. So I'm looking at anything that's coming to me as part mm-hmm. of that process. And I'm not going to be like, it's good or bad. But I will say like, um, the benefits of I, I was trained as a writer myself. And the 
the thing that always struck me was that authors' work would kind of get worse in their careers. And I thought, oh, how so? What, what, I, like, like, for example, like with Stephen King, right? Like you have, right. you know, like these really great, these really great foundational horror pieces. And then now he's still prolific. And, you know, I'm not saying what he's doing now is terrible, but it's just there's it lacks something. And I, and I was desperate to figure it out. And I kind of have this theory that it's an editor. Like when you're oh, Stephen wow. King now, you say that yeah. this scene is important. It stays because you're Stephen King. <laughs> but when Stephen King wasn't Stephen King yet, his editor would say, dude, do you think this is really necessary? Let's cut this. And like, maybe I want to hear more about this situation over here. That's kind of scary. And these are moments that they're creating together that we don't know about who's who. Yeah. Like that editor relationship brings out the best of an author. And having, having Mike's um, very... Mike has a great imagination. And if you look behind him, he's got, this is just a small sampling of his books. He's just got a whole wall of books um, from game design all the way into narrative and fiction. He's, he's got a great mind for it. So to me, it was really when I got some of that stuff back about this underground world that had been destroyed, uh, a fantasy world that had been destroyed and he had come down into the crust of the earth to survive. I was like, this is what we want. Um, and it, it's what we were talking about extensibility earlier. This is where my head was going was there's extensibility that's uh, built into the bigger world, but mm. also just a map like imagination or captivation with an idea. The bigger the world, the more you can just kind of think about different stuff that goes on and what happens. Like, anyway, so yes. I, I thought, yeah, that's awesome. And more mostly I was just worried Stuart would make him uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so w- would it be fair to say that you took that role of editor where you're saying to Stephen King, you know, less of this, more of that, or have you thought about this? I mean, did, is that the relationship the two of you had in this process? Um, I, in this case, I really wanted uh, I really wanted Stuart because he trained a little more seriously at a uh, at like a more prestigious writing program than I did. Um, right. And I had recently written things and shared it with him uh, that he was like, hey, here's here's some things that you're doing. And he was breaking down to me how I wasn't doing what I might put as like kind of the science of, of writing. Right. Like he was a clearly illustrating to me the importance of here's how you do this um i wanted hobgoblin which was coming at me at eight pages right to be to have support to have that kind of uh development and we did the same thing we also added a rules editor as well that is just not proof he's not just proofreading he's also trying to help uh do this and of course mike's also working with glenn on those like high level ideas for But the reason I didn't do it myself was because of that. If Mike had come to me with a bigger manuscript with some storytelling, I would have definitely come in and been like, hey, here's some ideas, but so good already. So, Mike, for you, what's it like working with a fiction editor and a a rules editor? Is this something that you have done unofficially with other people before? Or was this your first time really kind of running into this type of collaboration? 
Um, so on the rules editing side, like I've been, I've been lucky enough to have extremely interested and generous friends. Um, my, my kind of co-collaborator, co-conspirator, um, and co-host on, on rule of carnage, Glenn is, he, he is, uh, he's generous enough to be quite often quite thorough with my rules manuscripts. And he's also a very, um, He's one of those. He's an incredibly useful uh, foil because he's one of those war game players who will pl- play to win. By which I mean, he is analysing the game for its system and trying to understand the system and, and draw the most out of the system. Mm-hmm. Um, not because he takes particular pleasure in winning as the as the core activity, but like understanding and operating the logical system is his kind of like is his core activity. So when there are problems with the logical system, or there are some places where like the rules aren't, you know he can just see where the rules argument is going to be, uh, then that's something that I, I'm kind of used to. But uh, none of my friends that helped me out with the rules have ever written a published book. And right. Offspray doesn't really offer that function to its authors. They just expect us to turn in finished manuscripts. So working on Hobgoblin has had for the first time a sort of real injection of like sort of peers with experience in the business providing like straight up insights um, to try and provide more kind of, you know, w- whether it's the small stuff like consistency of communicating ideas or whether it's the big stuff about like, it, why are you communicating this entire chunk of the game here rather than mm-hmm. some other place? Uh, and sometimes I have a good reason for it. And sometimes, you know, it, I'm very open to reconsider it. On the fiction side, though, it was it was delightful. It was more like it was more like having an early collaborative kind of writing relationship where in some cases I would like throw some garbage out and he would (laughs) absolutely destroy it in this incredibly polite kind of generous way, particularly like one thing that, that I had to work on a lot, just, you know, the first couple of months were just me writing incredibly passive language and him taking every sentence and just saying like, put the fricking subject and the verb at the beginning (laughs) Not like walking into the room, she saw a glass. Like she walked into the room and saw a glass. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Isn't it amazing that, how we catch ourselves doing that? That's so funny. Yeah, no, and I, yeah. So now, like, that's like, yeah, that's like a that's like a writing tick that every time I spot myself doing it, I'm like, no. <laughs> I like when ChatGPT does it. ChatGPT does it, and I'm like, that's what you get when you read the whole of human language to base <laughs> how you write all the bad habits. Yeah, exactly, you get you get passive sentence structure. Um, and then and then part. So that was part of it. Was like he was giving me, you know, giving me kind of just sort of the the basics of like how not to sound like a goof. Um, right. But then also like I'd be throwing out these these kind of big ideas about what the narrative should be, and he'd be like, "Oh, that's cool, but like I want to know where this character came from, or like where this where this is happening." And I'd be like, "Yeah, actually, no, that's super interesting." Or he'd be like, "Yeah, but then what we can happen with this is that this could be a little bit of a more apocalyptic thing." And I'm like, "No, no, because actually I don't want the story to end in a sort of world changing thing. I want the story to like set us up for the beginning of like the the reader and their armies being the the agencies of change in this world." So this like. He was sort of saying, well, the story has to end with some kind of change to the world where it doesn't happen. And I'm like, no, actually, the purpose of this fiction is different. And we don't want to cloud anyone else's imaginative space. So those kinds of discussions were like really clarifying for me in terms of what is the purpose of fiction in the situation where you are trying to communicate and excite people 
that like this is a gameable setting. It's a setting with gaming hooks and like reading the the fiction and the world building means like, oh, there's a place for me and there's a reason for my guys to be doing a thing rather than presenting a kind of, you know, a huge and complete arc that in its yeah. of, in and of itself like drains the setting dry of all, you know, narrative juice. And that's the secret of miniature game is as a person who loves mini games, you know, I'm at my happiest when the mechanics go away and I'm imagining the story unfolding on the table. Right. And sometimes we have to create that story ourselves, but it's really nice when the game tees it up. Um, You sparked my interest a little bit, Mike, um, by invoking Magic the Gathering. Um, Hmm. Because uh, it's something that I've talked about on the show before, which is, I think, the the secret juice to the part of the reason that Magic the Gathering has been around for 30 some odd years is the fact that when you play Magic the Gathering, that's only 10 percent of the time you spend with Magic Gathering. 90 percent of the time is away from the table thinking about Magic the Gathering. Um, so give me an idea of why, why, what is it about the the army building that made that made you pull in that concept of Magic Gathering? And what did that mean? Yeah. Okay. So I'll, just very briefly. So the way that the way that army building works in Hobgoblin, there are like uh, thirteen unit types that are like light infantry, heaven infantry, light cavalry, heavy cavalry, monsters, monstrous infantry, blah blah blah. Those give you just your basic to hit chart and your movement rates, and they cost some points. And then you customize them by adding any number of strength keywords, which are like brutal, uh, um, you know. Um, elite different like upgrades essentially and they cost you points but then you can also add up to two weaknesses so you might be elite Mm. but you can say well they're slow or they're you know unruly or something and that that makes them cheaper again so you can make a bunch of garbage by just adding taking basic unit types and adding weaknesses or you can make this very you know elite army like piling a load of so the, the point being that a unit is a sort of classifying unit type. And I look at my guys and I'm like, well, these are sort of high elf spearmen. So we're going to call them light infantry. And then we'll give them the elite special rule and we'll give them something else and we'll give them something else. But like once I've built an army and I've, I've sort of classified each of the units and I've, the, the footprint of the unit, uh, like a unit in Hobgoblin is basically just a rectangle and you can kind of do what you want with it. There are other games that do the same thing. It's not a, a super um, innovation, but the point is sure. like you've painted some models. You can definitely use those models in my game. But what's more is that you can decide in game one, I'm going to call them elite uh, light infantry and I'm going to find out what that does. And when that doesn't fit in with the sort of rest of the tactics or the user units that I bought or the magic that I've chosen or the cursed artifact that my general is carrying to sort of tweak the army rules, then next game I can go, well, actually they weren't good enough. I want to, I want to make a light infantry unit with elite and, uh, you know, um, uh, something else. Or I can go, actually, they're not quite doing what I was expecting. I was expecting them to be tougher. So I'm going to make them heavy infantry and I'm going to give them a slightly different set of keywords. So the point being that, I love painting and building armies and I love thinking about um, army lists and playing and realizing that parts of my army weren't as efficient as they were. But what I don't like is invalidating models that I've painted because I want to make a tactical or a list building decision differently. And so what I've done with this system is basically say, well, you paint what you want and you game how you want. And either of those things can evolve sort of in isolation or in loose, in loose connection with each other. Neither of them, neither of them owns the other one outright. Um, and so that means that like, even though you've painted an army, having painted that army, you've still got all the iteration space that you want to like swap out a, a weakness and try a different one or see if this magic, see if this collection of spells uh, maybe, maybe sets them better, sets them up better for success. Um, and 
I think I think I think that's just a that I feel that that's a fairly novel way of approaching the sort yeah. of armchair general thing by recognizing that both of the both the hobby and the army building are exciting and important and interconnected, but not letting one just sort of squash the other one. I, I, I got to tell you, like, I, I feel these words in my bones because <laughs> I know that I'm it's happened to me and it's happened to a lot of people listening where you buy the box, you put the damn thing together, you spend hours painting it, you finally get it to the table and it sucks wind. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, my God, now what? Right. Exactly. And you only have you only have so many options. Right. And, and there's some systems that you can change upgrade cards and stuff like that. But still, the core of the, the core of the unit doesn't change. But for you to be able to do those tweaks, but still have the, the unit that you painted, that's pretty cool. That's a big deal. Yeah. And I think that like part part of the generic system is that like it it gives you it gives you the social contract. It gives you the permission space to be like, right. I'm gonna proxy in inverted commas this this giant green monster for this giant greenish blue monster. And in other systems where both of those monsters are well known, it's kind mm-hmm. of irritating and unfair and slight in uh, a, a bit of a mental overhead to say like, okay, just I, I'm proxying it for this other thing. I know it looks exactly like the, this thing, but it's not. And then mid game, like like you know, like someone will probably misremember and and be gotcha'd by something. But because yeah. we start with generic systems, it's like, well, okay, I always have to, I always have to expect that I don't know what the unit type is, and I always have to ask and check. Well, and it sounds like there's a lot of streamlining happening with this keyword system, right? So there's a familiarity that if I say elite, the person on the other side of me, even though they're, you know, there's no faction discrepancies, or like I don't know how to play Necrons or whatever it might be, there's a common language um, and a certain certain level of efficiency that happens there. It sounds like I, that's what I was saying about the efficiency of just like you learn what that rule does, and then now you don't have to relearn it. Uh, it doesn't have a right. skin for the elves versus the goblins. You <laughs> can just be like, it's a plus one for defense, and it's still written to describe uh, you know, what it's kind of doing. So you're describing your unit out with the keywords. They're not faction coded, so you're not doing the opposite right. issue of a, a miniatures agnostic game where you have your faction sheet that is your play style, And then you're like, how do I connect to this to this? So, Gregory, there was pre-Hobgoblin Gregory, and now there's post-Hobgoblin Gregory. Mm. I'd be curious to know, in the journey that you've taken so far with Hobgoblin, what are you going to bring with you to your next project? So how how has working on Hobgoblin changed you as a creator? Uh, So creator, being a creator uh, is about building creative confidence. And... Uh, you know, hmm. I really appreciate how Mike was saying he took a, he was like, I want to be a game designer. So I'm going to make a game for you know, one game a month and I'm going to do this many. So I wanted to produce a uh, high quality tabletop game and see if my theories about um, engaging in the creative process, opening up and doing beta, um, Involving professional creators like Stuart and David Rubiard, who's our editor, and then also Prom, who's the artist, and investing an insane amount of time and money into it. Could we make a game that's legendary? Um, and I don't know if it is yet. We really have, we have to get it out. But um, yeah. I will say, like, I, the Kickstarter 
funded, I think like 600% or 500% of over what I was asking. It was 606. I was just disappointed <laughs> we didn't hit 666%, but it was 606. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I mean, post, post Hop Goblin Greg like, is insanely excited about that. You know, we have, Electi has other projects coming up. We're investing time in Blaster. Um, and changing its format a little bit to open it up to other designers that are from outside of the, the core five. And just basically saying, see everyone, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to do the crazy crap and to, to take the time and go, no, let's write, a, let's write a proper story for this. We like it. We like this world. Let's invest in it and get, and get see if people are excited. And the answer was, yes, people were like, wow, a fresh take on this. That's very cool. How about how about for you, Mike? What um what did you pick up in the process of of making hobgoblin? Bleh. Have you picked up in the process of making hobgoblin that you're going to bring to your next design? I think. I mean, I think this this project particularly has um has benefited from an injection of other people's learnings and experience in a way that the other ones have mostly been me figuring it out. By myself <laughs> and you, you know I, I took a lot of learnings from gaslands and from a billion suns on a, on a range of different topics but they were mostly me just stumbling through on my own and this mm -hmm. is the first time where i can kind of come away with a bunch of like little pearls of wisdom or little moments of you know where somebody gave me a help up or or or, or, or drew a strike line through something and i'm like oh yeah okay like i've, I've really i've really moved I feel like I'm coming, I'm coming away with like, with spirit animals, if you see what I mean, yeah. in, a, in a way that like, just before I was just sort of stumbling out of the wasteland, just going like, I had to kill this pig myself. <laughs> and the shotgun I built from a shoe. Uh, <laughs> oddly specific. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so I think, I think that's, I think that's mostly, it. I mean, I, I am, I am really, really excited uh more than anything i'm excited for the physical object that greg is yeah. going to make for this game um because uh the games that i have made so far have been like uh they 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 have been the, the blue books are functional the, the hardback gaslands refueled was nicely laid out um yep. it still had um it still had all of my uh, photography in which uh, you know take it or leave it um <laughs> But what uh, what Blaster showed me, and you 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 asked Gregory about that that first m moment where he got introduced to us. Like what happened was the five of us who like making games. This guy came on with a mustache and a set of visuals that were like much better than anything F Fantasy Flight puts in their role playing yeah. game, and we were like. I don't know what the rest of this conversation is for. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> Can we have some of this on our game, please? And then you look at the the way that Blaster is laid out and like every one of the articles in each of the volumes of Blaster is Greg kind of just going hog wild on some like new sort of different way of spinning spinning game text and making yeah. the communication of a you know what is what is a very familiar and somewhat dry kind of technical presentation of wargaming rules and trying to find ways of you know just making it come off the page at you and and you know doing what like i perceive sort of magazine 
design does where it's like it mm-hmm. really draws your eye to the things that are important and it takes imagery and says well how can we make this imagery kind of integrated into the page and many many other things that i don't even detect and don't have the technology the technical words to describe and so i'm excited to see what like chrome's imagery filtered mm-hmm. through greg's you know control of space and uh, and layout is going to produce for us and then uh I don't know. I just want to hold that thing and flip it. It's super exciting. And and I think I've mentioned this before, maybe not directly to you guys, but um, the brand and look of Blaster is a big deal. Uh, the content's fantastic, right? But there's there's something about when I recommend people to have like, if you checked out Blaster, I know they're going to go to something that looks serious. It looks sexy and it looks serious. And that's exactly what you're talking about. And we can have the greatest content in the world, but if we're going to put it and staple it together um, using newsprint, it's going to be a lot different than what Blaster looks like. Um, and I think that that's significant. And um, I think that the idea that that same, that same approach is going to end up what Hobgoblin looks to feel like, that's exciting. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, it's got its own vibe. Cause like mm-hmm. there are things that I love out there right now that have this really strong consistent visual style like i've uh, for, for various reasons n- not entirely uninspired by your interview of the guys from dcc um oh yeah and some other people recommending it to you. like i've been really digging through the dcc world and like it, I, I don't love the design but like it's everything that it is trying to be and it, <laughs> it is, is nothing that it isn't trying to be yep. and like the same is true of like merkborg like merkborg yep. like the first time i opened that book i was like holy moly like this is so fun it's like it totally knows what it is do i want every game to look like that absolutely not i can't find any of the headings and i don't know what this page means. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's incredibly enjoyable to sort of seep into that and i think yep. that like uh, I think that's that's what I'm so excited about. Like Bl- Blaster, like Greg, you you have a you have a voice, man, and like it's yeah. not an incoherent one. It's very consistent. And I think as as we see, like Alexi put out new games, it'd be interesting to see whether you whether you contain whether you maintain a level of quality, but you vary greatly on the on the branding, or whether Alexi's kind of has a it has a smell to it. Oh God, <laughs> that is like you're, you're going to keep me up at night with that one. That's a good question. Oh man! <laughs> I so for me, I think this goes back to that, um, to to this kind of holistic thing that we were trying to do with Hotgub. We were looking at the game, and we we're looking at these other parts of it. But in branding, you kind of learn that there's, you know, how you answer your chat and your email, and how your your phone message waiting, and how the first interaction a person has on your website. And all of these things really matter to communicate what you're trying to do. For me, I realized that um, games typically come at it from a variety of angles, like your um, really pretty ones, like that are just like, this is just a visual exercise, like work work, where it's like communicating that that world through that visual. Um, Mm -hmm. Or other ones where it's like, this is purely in your imagination. Um, All of the different things have to fire on the same cylinders. There's the game, there's the lore, there's the the room for the player to actually be a part of the world. There's all of these different aspects that need to be balanced that compose and make a game. And um, you know, there's some. I'm sure there's some uh, you know video game music composer listening to this going, "He's right. You got to have the ambiance of the music." You know, like <laughs> there's more things involved. There's so many crazy jobs on a video game. Uh, like check, you know, like cast list or whatever. It's 
It's crazy. Yeah. And Foley being so important in movies, that's how I'm trying to rethink how we approach looking at games is going, what's the big picture? How do you get the game to be a thing? It's by looking at all of those different angles and what's absolutely necessary for each yeah. specific game. Because so, some other games may come back with great narratives that don't that don't need uh, the coaching, but they need you know rules support or um, art or photography or you know any of those things. You can find that kind of piece that needs to be tweaked and improved to make it balance out and make it a great game. What's exciting for me listening to that, Gregory, is that what we're talking about is a certain level of of growing up um, f- for gaming and taking things that are happening outside of gaming and have been happening for a long time um, and bringing it in to gaming and saying, hey, this is serious stuff we're doing. We're making stuff that is serious and let's start treating it seriously. And that's that's really kind of what I'm hearing as you're as you're talking through this. Am, am I capturing it right? Yes, I think so. I, I don't want to say it's not serious, but we're doing the work of making fun. You know, we have fun things we're trying to right. create. Taking that, taking the approach to that seriously, yes, and absolutely. Uh, we're not trying to take ourselves yep. too seriously, but That's we exactly are trying I mean. to like, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's worth the creative endeavor to make the, the make the game the best it possibly can be. You know, we talked about that uh, extensibility of the world saying like, here's your reasons. Here's the crucible that your game exists inside of, or sorry, the gauntlet. No, crucible. The crucible that your game is. I always get these two mixed up. Uh, the, the crucible in which like, why are these armies fighting? Why is this fun? Like, are we just enjoying killing? Like, this is weird. Um, having like, uh, kind of like what's the kind of world what's the context of this and and why is this game different than any other game uh all of those questions have to be yeah. answered in a in a kind of in a way that people can get behind and understand so that it's fun when you go to the table and go here's what i've got yeah and and it um it's a delicate balance right and um you know the i think one of the biggest things that i have pulled having played mike's games is not only does a, does does Mike have a really good sense of that balance, but um, I think one of the things that attracts me to what Mike makes the most is my decisions matter. And there's enough of them that when I lose a game of Gaslands or I lose a game of A Billion Suns, I can go, what, if I'd only done this, I wonder if this would have changed things, you know, and and all it's such a such a delicate delicate balance um and i think that uh that that's what makes me very very excited about hobgoblin so guys we're going to take one more break when we get back from this break we're going to do one of my favorite segments on the show we're going to ask both gregory and mike what they've been grooving on lately we'll be right back Are you enjoying our long form interviews with creatives on this podcast? Maybe you're craving deeper discussions about our guests or some of the RPG plays on our Twitch and YouTube channel. Well, I've got an opportunity for you. You see, Third Floor Wars now has a Patreon only Discord server. You can join a vibrant community of like minded enthusiasts diving deep into every episode of our RPG plays and podcast. Connect with fans, engage in spirited discussions, and unlock the behind-the-scenes insights.
For just a dollar a month, access a world of tabletop gaming goodness. Connect with passionate gamers who share your love for the tabletop podcast and everything produced on the third floor. As a Patreon supporter, you also enjoy ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can immerse yourselves in captivating stories and fascinating interviews without interruptions, taking your listening experience to a whole new level. By joining the Third Floor Wars Patreon community, you not only gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only Discord server, but you also support the growth of my podcast and channels. Your contributions enable me to continue creating high-quality content that entertains, educates, and upskills tabletop enthusiasts like yourself. Maybe don't wait. Join the Third Floor Wars Patreon today and unlock a world of camaraderie, discussions, and knowledge. Visit patreon.com forward slash thirdfloorwars or check the link in the show notes and come join our community. The Third Floor Wars Patreon-only Discord server awaits you. I and the other patrons can't wait to welcome you with open arms and a fistful of dice. So, Gregory, one of the things that kind of mistakenly happened on this show um, and now has become a solid segment and, a, and an audience favorite is finding out not only what creators are making, but what they're consuming, because um, I think it's I think it's insightful to understand you as a creator by what gets you excited. So is there anything recently, Gregory, that it's gotten its hooks into you and it can be a book, a video game, uh, a tabletop game, something that just you came across and it became your focus and you could think about anything else? Yes. So as I've been trying to switch gears into building something that's sort of bigger than myself, like to create a studio and process and these other things, I've been consuming a lot of like, you know, borderline boring business books, but I found a couple that are really, (laughs) really um, have been speaking to me. One of them is Creative Confidence by Tom Kelly and David Kelly. And it's uh, unleashing the creativity, creative potential within all of us. And it's so good. It, I mean, it is. it teaches you just like the basics of how do you start to, first of all, just admit that you're a creative, that everybody has creative potential. Interesting. And just what does it take to actually start to unleash? And like one of the first things that um, they recommend that is like a core takeaway I can just give anyone on this podcast is just, uh, you're going to be afraid until you do it. So take mm-hmm. a cue out of Mike's book. If you're interested in, in doing game design, write a game. And if it's bad, that's okay. Because it's your first game. Write a game, finish it, put it on paper, commit to a time frame, get it done, and, and show it to a friend. You don't know if you've written a masterpiece or something terrible, but you know that you've made a game and you can move on to the next one. Um, build that creative confidence. Um, and then the other couple books I've been really liking is the Near Ayal. He wrote Hooked and Indistractable. Um, Hooked is kind of that ubiquitous kind of bad guy social media um, developer book. That's like, here's how you make products that are like hooking people. Like this is like the 
the kind of the Greg, Greg, we did we didn't know this was evil when we were doing it in 2016 <laughs> or 17. We thought we were just using latest research. Yeah, I mean, that's arguable. I've seen the, I've seen but, the tapes. Uh, it, but if you, you've, and so now you've read the one where he tries to defend himself. Yes, and <laughs> I like it. I really like Indistractable. Um, it does some coaching on on some ways to to kind of fight against everything competing for your attention and scheduling things that are important to yeah. you. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely to Mike's point. Trying to think through, hey, can we hook people on tabletop games? Because at least that's healthier than a cell phone. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Can I bounce? Can I bounce off that one? Please. I spent so much time thinking about that damn hooked model. So I- I've now got that thing baked in my brain. And as I've been thinking about this for uh, a project that I'm working on, I've been thinking about what the sort of what the tabletop hobby loop is. Mm. And for me, there's this sort of four stages where I'm thinking about this, I'm doing mental preparation. I'm thinking about the game. I'm maybe shopping for the books. I'm reading them. I'm trying to absorb them. I'm thinking about what kind of force I'm going to build. But what's really interesting is that almost no other game uh, or pursuit, um, no other gaming realm has this like next stage where I've got physical preparation, where like I have to yeah. buy the models and build the models and paint the models. And I have to build the terrain. And I've got like this whole sort of DIY setup before I can get to the third stage, which is playing the game. And the fourth stage was like analyzing and figuring out what I'm going to change or what, you know, maybe what models I want to buy because I'm excited about it or what I want to change about my army. So I really like that kind of that sort of four stages. And it's like a, a game that's going to really fire on all of those four stages is probably going to help the players get really excited. And if you miss like a billion sons is an example where like, uh, you don't know what your army list is going to be because a billion sons doesn't let you choose in advance. Yeah. So it has to hook into these other ways of getting you to think about what you're going to do in advance, maybe thinking about your competitive advantages or maybe, um, thinking about kind of, all right, well, I've, I've got to build some cool space stations because like maybe those missions will come up. And so there's, there's parts of the hobby loop that I'm engaging, but I had to be fairly strategic about it because I like broke one of the core like functioning axes of the, of the, of the normal way of getting players to think about and then play your game. So when you think about those four stages in that model, Mike, is there, is there a place where it tends to break down? Um, so I, I, I pull, I find 50 people that left tabletop gaming, right? <laughs> it's, always never- play, it's always playing the game, man. Like is it? it's always playing the game. Like so many games are just not as fun as they should be yeah. when you're actually playing them. Like, there's so many games that I think where like, I mean, we, we talked about magic and like, I think I can, I think I can, I, I hate kicking games, but I think I can kick magic. Like it, it'll take it. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> it'll survive my God. Like, I, I never really understood the, the larger meta loop of uh, magic. So I played it, I played it a fair bit in the nineties, but I didn't have enough money to have anything more than the cards that I had. So yeah. What I what I, I I left that game in the nineties going. This is garbage. I don't know why people like the game. It's it's not very fun to play. Right. But I wasn't engaged in the larger, more enjoyable sort of meta or or, or like major game loop of like that optimization and acquisition thing that makes the mm-hmm. game work. So I think that there's, there's a number of games where just like getting more into the game and thinking about your army list is more enjoyable than the actual experience of the, of the 120 minutes where I play the game. Um, And so I'm obsessed and have been obsessed with making that, that 120 minutes more and more fun, but you like, you can't let the the rest of it uh, go by the wayside, even when you're trying to 
you deliberately hamstring yourself with a billion sounds. <laughs> it's very, very true. All right. So how about for you, Mike? Same question I asked Gregory. What is what is something uh, that you have not made um, that has just gotten its hooks into you lately? Uh, I mean, I almost I mean, I, I almost didn't finish Hobgoblin because of Elden Ring and like, oh, Gregory, really? Gregory, I'm sorry about all the delays to the manuscript. <laughs> So you guys can't see this, but Gregory's like white, like his hands went to his head and it just like this anguished look on his face. I'm just jealous. He was playing Elden Ring and I was like, so like, so uh, I, you know, everyone knows what Elden Ring is listening to this, this podcast is, but like, I, I bounced off all of the Souls uh, games up until this one. And, you know, it's because in this one, like the, the main gameplay loop of like find a baddie, get killed by it. And instead of just getting rammed repeatedly against it, I can go into a field and like pick flowers or learn how to make cheese or whatever. And then come back with like a really powerful cheese axe and be like, yeah. Uh, and then next time I can I can discover a new way of doing it. And the thing is that like... I totally fell in love with the way that it communicates its its law and took yeah. a lot of like indirect inspiration about like okay how is how are the storytellers in this game trying to communicate the world and what can I learn about that as I'm as I'm embarking on this similar kind of pursuit here and because I because I would, uh, because Greg had asked me to start telling the story I started reading books about uh, about video game storytelling and how the the craft of storytelling functions in an interactive medium and like having Elden Ring doing a masterclass in front of me whilst I was also reading the literature was just, it was just a thoroughly enjoyable, it's just a thoroughly enjoyable process. It was like, it was like a whole sort of 18 month seminar in like interesting in, in narrative and games design. And of course, with any game that I truly enjoyed, this happened uh, a year and a half ago with, with Doom, um, uh, 2016 as well. Like when I play a game that really catches my imagination, when I play a video game that really catches my imagination, I just start working on a tabletop translation of it. Not a direct like I'm making a Doom game, but like something that's just like okay, what is what are the core loops of this game? Why do they excite me? And how could I generate a similar feeling of excitement? But obviously, that isn't anything like it because you know holding a controller and having immediate reaction and and the ability to control the screen is totally different. Yeah, what you do with tabletop games, but I like the I like the question of like, what's the feeling that I'm getting, and how can I create the same? How can I use kind of rules and dice and miniatures to create an alchemy that sort of summons the same uh, rough sensations or excitement or kind of feeling of what's cool about it? So yes, yeah, so, I mean I've I've been working I've been working for a few months on it, just tinkering with something in my in my idle minutes with um with a sort of smaller scale how do you make a really crunchy combat system that's card driven and so mm -hmm. it doesn't require any <clears throat> custom components like playing card driven but that would have like a you know <clears throat> an exploratory map that was maybe you know more like a fighting fantasy map than than mm -hmm. like an actual you know i like i I like Kingdom Death and, and Eon Trespass and that there's so many components in those games that when Mike makes a game, he tries to fit it into a paperback book that only requires the things that are already in your house. And so I'm kind of like, what if Elden Ring was like Kingdom Death, but only involved the things in your house? And that's kind of like one thing that I'm tinkering with at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's like, that's, I think one of the curses of, uh, like when I, when I used to make music, I don't anymore. Like when I used to make music, I couldn't barely listen to music without thinking about how I would make similar music. And yeah. the sort of same thing is true right now with games. Like, I, I lost myself in Elden Ring a lot, but, uh, you know, 
often I would step away from it and and be trying to sort of figure out what I'd learned from being so immersed in, and, and engaged. But well, I'm sure we could do an entire podcast on it, which we're not going to do, Mike. But just out of curiosity, when you dissect Elden Ring and make the transplant to the tabletop, can you give me an idea of what you take out of Elden Ring? So what is it in Elden Ring that you think has potential at the tabletop level? Uh, for me, the thing that I was taking out, and I'm sure there are other things, but for me, the core loop that was interesting is make an extremely difficult to win situation and then provide many lateral options mm. that through exploration give you new tools emergently. And then you come back to something that at first seemed impossible and now seems like you're the big man. That's pretty I, cool. I, I, think that, I think that loop seems to me really interesting. I don't know, like I have seen people try and do that in board games. I don't know that I've ever seen that in a like DIY tabletop, situ uh, like miniature game situation, but I think it's doable. That's exciting. That's exciting. So obviously um, people listening right now are super excited about this hobgoblin and we're in a bit of a unique situation. So how does someone who's excited about hobgoblin satisfy that hunger right now, Mike? I'm going to, I'm going to pass that one to Gregory. Gregory. So we're actually setting up the, like a backer kit, uh, you know, late pledge thing. So if you're hearing this, most likely you can jump on the late pledge. And then um, we're also, we also on our website have access to quick start rules. So you can actually go download the core mechanics of the game and start to kind of figure it out with your army a little bit, help you figure out how to move and shoot and do like a tutorial game or two. Um, if you really itch to try it out, you can, you can just download the rules and play it. Um, but, uh, so Gregory, yeah. Oh God. No, sorry. That was just uh, I was going to say, you're, so you're making this gorgeous book, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to go out to the backers. Is it, are you guys going to be making that book available post fulfillment? Yeah, so the goal is, so if you're retail listening to this um, and you want to set up wholesale in your country or if you want to just get retail for your store, reach out to me. Um, we have retail pledges available as well. So yes, we're hoping Excellent. to get the retail stores and um, I'm kicking myself because at Adepticon, this was my first... Uh, my first uh, booth at a at a con, and, I, and all these retailers are coming up, and they're like, "You should have just gone to Gamma. We would have bought this in in weeks over there." And I'm like, "Well, how do you get in with the distributor?" They're like, "We literally walk over to the distributor and say we want to carry Hobgoblin." I was like, "Oh, cool." Uh, so I'm <laughs> going to cool. Gamma next year. You can connect with me there. Uh, that's very exciting. Uh, so guys, uh, obviously everything we've talked about, if you scroll down right now, we've got links all in the show notes um, of where to get your hands on everything. Um, Mike, it was really great talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm excited to, to get Hobgoblin out there and, uh, you know, make rank and flank sexy again. <laughs> and uh gregory it was a real pleasure meeting you man and this was uh this was a hell of a premiere for you thanks greg it was really nice to meet you and had a great time chat i'm glad last but not least you listening you've listened to this whole thing we're, we're we're at the end i appreciate you doing that take care we hope you enjoyed this 
episode, subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, Floorheads. That was a really good segment, gentlemen. That was good. Thanks. Okay, thank that was you. Fun. Yeah, there's some real meat in there. Thank you. Just questioning the hell out of myself. So thank you for saying something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a curse. I don't know what it is. You're killing it, man. You're killing it. I released the episode and it's just with Mike. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, God. <laughs> Damn, dude. That'll help with your confidence. Why, why is Mike talking about Greg this whole time? It makes no sense. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. I think I'll uh, I'll start with you, Gregory, and then we'll go to Mike on this one. I'll bring us back. Uh, oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.